Hello, wrestling fans. This is Al Getz. Welcome to another episode of Charting the Territories. It's February, and we are headed up north. For the first time ever, this podcast is going to focus on a territory not uh, based in uh, the south, not based in Oklahoma and Louisiana. Of course, we've touched on other territories at various times, but this month, the podcast is going to focus on Stampede Wrestling in 1971. So, of course, I, it, of course, it figures I choose February in the middle of winter to head north. Uh, <laughs> with me, as always, is John Boucher. John, are you, uh, are you bundled up for our trip to the Great White North? I'm, I'm bundled. I've got my, I've, I've got my hoodie, my hoodie on, with my little pocket in front, put my little hands inside here if I get chilly. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to, to, to go north. Yeah, man. I um. So I, of course, have lived in the South, in the Southern United States, at this point since uh, for about thirty years, because I moved to North Carolina in '93. I got to tell you though, the coldest uh, time I can remember uh, several years ago, I went to Montreal in March for a UFC fight. It was George St. Pierre against Nick Diaz. Mm. And I got to tell you, Montreal in March was it's it's the coldest weather I've experienced as an adult. Uh, I'm sure there were some winters when I was a kid growing up in New York where the temperature, up, you know, got the same. But it felt like 30 below to me. I think it was around zero or maybe even a little less than zero. But it felt like the the, the world was ending. So, John, <laughs> what is the coldest weather you can recall having been uh. in? I was in Montreal just maybe a little over a year ago in early December. Yeah, that was right after we met. Right after yeah. was, I was up there around Thanksgiving or so. We yeah. uh, met for dinner and then you were going up to Montreal. And it was very cold. Yeah. Uh, and I, the, the group I was staying with, they were staying at an Airbnb and I was staying at a hotel, which was only like 15, 20 minutes away which wasn't bad uh when it was above when it was in a double digit temperature it was fine at night uh at the wind it was not that was a long ass 20 minutes man that was that was that was not a fun not a fun walk oh that was uh, oh yeah that distance was walking distance okay yeah. oh wow yeah that's uh that's a lot to a lot of time to walk in, in freezing cold weather. But luckily, we both persevered. We both survived. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Stampede Wrestling in 1971. Now, this was a time when none of Stu's children were yet wrestling. Smith Hart would have his first match in the summer of 1972. And Bruce would have his several months later. So at this time, there are no Hart children, although Stu himself makes a couple of appearances in the ring during the year in a coming-out-of-retirement angle. We'll talk about the top stars, the titles, the title holders, the booking philosophy of the territory in 1971, and a whole lot more. Plus, we'll dig a little deeper into the careers and lives of Kurt Von Hess and Gil Hayes. To get the whole picture on Stampede in 1971, you can check out A Year in the Life at ChartingTheTerritories.com. Each month, we will look at one year in the life of a wrestling territory in ways that have never been done before. And of course, the podcast this month includes all our regular features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, This Month I Learned, 
And we kick things off with Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. So this month, John, you bought me a laser disc. Yes, yes. I was just watching uh, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me the, uh, yesterday, and they kept talking about the laser beams. <laughs> so and now whenever I see the laser disc, I have to say it the way that uh, they did on the movie. But this is um, this laser disc was actually, I believe this was the first release from Coliseum Video. Back in the day on VHS, is that correct, John? One of the first. I don't know. It might might have been like the best of the WWF Volume One or something. May okay. have been, but this this is one of the first, definitely. This was if, one, if not the first. if not the first, it was one of the first. This was uh, the official World Wrestling Federation Wrestling's bloopers, bleeps, and body slams. <laughs> I love this tape. Uh, yeah, this is a fun one. So this has. This one has the three different advice for the Lovelorn segments with uh, Freddie Blassie, one with Captain Lou, and one with Luscious Jolly, Johnny, Jolly Valiant. Luscious <laughs> Johnny Valiant, although he at times was jolly and luscious and valiant. Yeah. yeah okay. So there you go. Um, there's a bunch of food-related segments on this particular video. Yep. We have uh, Salvatore Bolomo making pizza. We have the Wild Samoans uh, allegedly making Samoan cuisine, but instead it's just raw fish. Yeah. And Kamala allegedly eating <laughs> not just a chicken, but a famous performing chicken. Yeah. So what is your favorite segment on wrestling's bloopers, bleeps, and body slams? Well, uh, see, I, I love the 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 non uh inappropriate footage from Butcher Vashon's wedding. There's some stuff on there that looks a little suspect uh, through through 2023 eyes. Um, th that stuff is not my favorite. But I love the, the fun parts of the wedding. It's, it's fun. Um, but even more so than that, I think we talked about this before on these, these old Coliseum videotapes and episodes of Tuesday Night Titans. I really like like the old... They had really cool historical footage, some of them, um, or even current house shows. You know, in early 1985, like my options as a as a 12 year old living in Connecticut, this is one of like the few options out there for me seeing like old old wrestling matches from Madison Square Garden or even current ish house shows from like the Philadelphia Spectrum. You know, I'm I'm 11 years old. I'm not calling you know John McAdam on the phone asking for tapes yet or anything. You know, yes. so like this was a, this was a great option. Yet was the key phrase yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, I also I like Andre Andre doing the uh, the fish thing, fish song, which yeah. is a clip that's been repeated over and over and over again. Yeah, uh, yeah. But this is a lot of fun. Also, there's you know there are some legitimate bloopers in there, and I love. There's one where Gorilla is filming something for this, and he calls it bloopers, bleeps, and bloody slams, <laughs> and just. His reaction, he's, he just has such a great sense of humor. As, as such a big guy, he used to be this, you know, monster heel wrestler. He was just so nice and affable and, and, and aw shuck. So his reaction when he accidentally says bloody slams is just so genuine and pure. You know, I like uh, seeing how these guys are behind the scenes. Blassie almost loses it. Yeah. During yeah. the uh, advice for the Lovelorn segment. And Vince loses it all like all over this. There's one scene with him and Alfred or I forget what they're doing. And Vince makes like a cocaine reference. I think like yes. Alfred is 
Alf, like Belomo is making pizza and he's got like the dough and he's got like out he's got the you know flour on his nose and Vince is like oh you got some powder there on your nose Alfred probably, probably not the first not time the first I've seen time that. yeah <laughs> they break they break they break character like they're uh, Jimmy Fallon and Horatio Sands <laughs> on SNL <laughs> yeah they really in two thousand and two. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the videos they put out at first when they were sort of finding their footing and trying to figure out what, you know, their audience would want on a home video. And of course, we know who, who eventually you know became the, the guy in charge of Coliseum home video. Was uh, a country boy you didn't want to mess with. Hillbilly Jim. Oh, really? I, did I, not I think know he that. ended up working out. Yeah, I think his. Re- j- job with the WWF after he retired from the ring, he was uh, with Coliseum Video. He might have just oh. been a spokesperson, um, yeah. or or I don't know if he actually worked behind the scenes or not. But yeah, he was a uh, a part of that wing of Vince McMahon's enterprise. Well, another nice thing about this uh, laser disc version is the different cover art than that of the VHS tape. The VHS tape that I had, or I still have actually somewhere, had uh, Lou Albano. Hitting Alpha, the wild snow one over the head with a chair. That was well, the well. This one looks like he's about to hit the ganja. <laughs> yeah, he's got like a weird pot leaf stuff. Yeah, down he's got a, his he's, Basically, he's he's sitting there with his uh, you know, with his Hawaiian shirt unbuttoned and opened all the way, and then there's a pot leaf sticking from out of the band of his sweatpants. Yeah, and he so has a, a diet uh, a diet Coke or a oh, diet okay. soda beverage. <laughs> Diet soda beverage. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think they uh, they went to great lengths to not have you know the Coke <laughs> logo, but it's clearly a, a can of Diet Coke. So yeah, so this is uh this is pretty neat. Do we know when they got into the laser disc business? Because I don't think those would have come out at the same time, would they have? I don't know. I don't know. I tried to like do a little read up on that, and I I couldn't find anything about the actual you know issue date of this versus the VHS. Okay, so we don't know. So if any of our listeners knows the answer to that, uh, you can call in or yes. uh, tweet in <laughs> and let us know. Uh, so uh, many years ago, my grandmother, uh, who of course is the typical Jewish grandmother, you know, was was worried I wasn't dating enough, and uh, she one time told me that if I didn't do something about it, she was going to call J date. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I really just didn't have uh, anything to tell her other than good. Well, good luck with that, I guess. I don't even think you could have called J date. <laughs> oh, but uh, she's just looking out for her for her favorite grandson. She would always yes. tell me I was her favorite. And then she would say, I'm not supposed to say that. And I'm pretty no. sure she said it to at least Two of her three other grandchildren. She had a total of four. I'm pretty sure she used the same line with three of us. Well, I feel bad for the, the odd, odd one out there. Uh, he, he knows. He, he knows why. <laughs> he knows why he didn't make the cut. Yeah, gotta, believe gotta, me. Gotta, but oh, yeah, but we're going to talk about Stampede Wrestling in 1971. But at first, I want to follow up on a couple of things that we discussed last month. Uh, John, you had asked how one would go about submitting info to wrestlingdata.com. And uh, I spoke with uh, my contact there, uh, who is Chris Knights, who actually wrote uh, a book on Amarillo along with Scott Teal that's available from Crowbar Press. And this is what he told me. Um, And 
for our listeners, this is primarily for things like I have original programs, ads, marketing materials for cards not listed on the site and would like to send them to you for inclusion. On WrestlingData.com, there is a Contact Us link on the left-hand side of the page. If you go there, it then takes you uh, to a pull-down menu where you can choose a specific staff member. In this case, choose the WrestlingData.com team. And then you'll have a chance to type in your email address and write a brief message. And based on what's in the message, they the site will then route it to the most appropriate person. And if it's about territories in the 60s or 70s, it's probably going to go to Chris Knight's. Um, but that's how you do it. And then they'll get back to you. So, oh, yeah. Very cool. Thank you. That is how we can continue to take uh, one of these aggregator sites uh, between, you know, that and Cage Match are the two most frequently cited Cage match is better for modern era wrestling and wrestlingdata.com is much better for more historical stuff. Yeah. So yeah. that's sort of why I've, I've decided to go with them, but they're both, uh, they're both quite, uh, they have a ton of info on both sites, but they still can always use more. Indeed. And I also wanted to follow up on my pending induction into the Southern States wrestling hall of fame. Uh, we are recording this on Monday February 13th. The episode comes out on Thursday, the 16th. And on Saturday, February 18th in Kingsport, Tennessee, I will take my rightful place in the Southern States Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, some people ask if this would uh, be streamed or made available online. It will not be live streamed. However, the event will be added to the Southern States Wrestling Network the week after it takes place. For more info and to sign up for the network, you can go to southernstateswrestlingnetwork.pivotshare.com. And Southern States Wrestling has been in existence for over 30 years at this point. They've got a ton of content on their network. Uh, they have, you know, literally, you know, decades worth of house shows and some TV that they were running at various times. Uh, really, and there, there's a lot of appearances by a lot of, uh, very well-known stars, Sensational Sherry, Rock and Roll, Jimmy Valiant, Tracy Smothers, The Fullers, Lawler. Uh, the list goes on and on. So check out the Southern States Wrestling Network to see the Duke of New York, Al Getz, inducted into the Southern States Wrestling Hall of Fame, where he rightfully belongs. Yes. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> so a year in the life of Stampede Wrestling. If you go to our website, chartingtheterritories.com, you can see the territory fact sheet for Stampede. Now, these fact sheets, which we're going to be doing for many, if not all, territories for the early 1970s, provides some fascinating pieces of info on the territory. And another great thing is as we continue to do more and more of the territories, we can compare the two. Well, we can compare the different territories and look to see differences in how big the territory was, not only by size, but how many wrestlers they had on the crew, how many shows they ran per night, uh, a whole bunch of unique and interesting data points. So last month, we looked at Leroy McGurk's territory, and McGurk was running regular cards in over 20 cities and towns, typically running three house shows every night. By comparison, Stampede was mostly a one-show-per-night territory. So right off the bat, there's a big difference. Mondays, they usually ran Lethbridge, Alberta, though a few times a year they ran the nearby town of Tabor instead of Lethbridge. On Tuesdays, they alternated between Red Deer and Medicine Hat. 
On Wednesdays and Thursdays, they ventured eastward into Saskatchewan, running Saskatoon and Regina. And on Fridays, they ran Calgary. On Saturdays, they ran Edmonton. In the early 70s, they seemed to have been off on most, but probably not all, Sundays. So right there, that's, you know, six days a week. Four of the towns were basically run weekly. Um, Sorry, five of the towns were basically run weekly. And then uh, Red Deer and Medicine Hat were each run approximately every other week. Now, in addition to looking at the territory's loop, we also calculate a few statistics that measure what I call the booking pace or philosophy of the territory. We know there are some slow-moving territories. I think the WWWF and the AWA are the two I most associate with being slow. There's not a lot of turnover. They don't have angles every week or title changes every week. It's more like a big thing. In the WWWF, when somebody turned, it was like a once-a-year type of yep. thing. You know, when, when uh, you know, Spiros turned or when Maya Via turned, that was a big deal. Yep. Whereas in a place like Goulas or Gulf Coast, that was just, you know, another another Saturday morning on TV. They did it, you know, all the time. Yep. So we're actually going to put some numbers to that. For McGurk's territory, they had three main titles, two singles and one tag. And those titles changed hands a total of nine times in 1971. In Stampede, they had two main titles which changed hands a total of 11 times. So right off the bat, there are more frequent title changes for the titles. Uh, McGurk's territory actually had no turns in 1971, whereas in Stampede, there were four. And two of those were the same wrestler. Gil Hayes actually turned twice in 1971. (laughs) We're going to talk more about Gil a little bit later. Looking at these pieces of info, we can conclude that Stampede had a faster pace than McGurk's territory, which makes sense when you remember they only ran one show a night, you know, most of the time. Uh, If you're going to see the same guys week after week, you need to put them in different roles in different positions in order to get the fans to keep coming back. Whereas if you're running multiple shows per night, you can rotate the guys that, you know, that work Greenville, Mississippi. So it's not always the same guys each and every week. So, John, when you when was your first realization of the idea of multiple crews running, you know, every night? My first realization. Uh, hmm. Yeah. That was, I'm trying I to remember when that was, would actually. Yeah, for me, tell me when I read the, the PWI arena reports. Ah, wow. That's 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 way, 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 way later for me. Um. Uh, I think I don't think it was until I was reading, you know, the at some of the result sites or, or, or books that would list um, uh, results years and years and years after the fact and realizing that, the, you know, the WWF in the 80s would have like two or three crews running at the same time, you know, where you have like the stories of like Hogan and Orndorff working one show like, a, you know, working middle of the card main event, the middle of the card uh, on the East Coast, and then taking the jet yeah. you know, to, to, to the West Coast and, and main eventing. So, so way, way, way later for me. Okay. Well, so, yeah, it's just it's interesting to see the different territories, which of them were one show per night, which ones were two, which ones were three, and which ones were four. I think, uh, I think as we go on, we will find the territory that ran the most house shows would have been Goulas. 
And this is even if you don't include East Tennessee and some of the places that uh, Billy Golden was running where he's using a couple of his guys on top, but then bringing in the rest of the crew from Ghoulis. Even if you exclude those, I think we're going to find Ghoulis running four shows a night, many nights. Uh, some nights mm. it might be three, some nights it might be four. Mid-Atlantic was typically three per night. So I, I think, you know, I think the top three are going to end up being McGurk, Mid-Atlantic, and uh, Ghoulis with uh, WWWF might actually be less than that because during the week they, they weren't running three shows. They were probably running two because a lot of their top guys like Bobo and, you know, and guys like that were working for the Sheik or Toronto or for Pedro Martinez other nights. So they didn't really have enough of a crew to run three house shows every single night, but we'll find out as we continue to chart these territories. Another statistic we are looking at is uh, roster turnover. And again, this is, you know, how often the roster changes, how often newcomers come in and guys leave. And how this is calculated is by looking at the average number of wrestlers in the territory at any given point during the year. And then also looking at the total number of wrestlers that were in the territory during the year. So you divide the total number by the average and then subtract one. So, for example, if the territory had an average of 20 wrestlers on the roster at any given point in time and 40 different wrestlers appeared on the roster during the year, you would take 40 divided by 20, which is 2, subtract 1, and then you get 1, and then you express that as a percentage. That's 100%. So the turnover is 100%. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not the same. It's not that all 20 guys that started the year left and were replaced by new ones. It's just a way of calculating, you know, the frequency of new faces coming in. Yeah. Huh. So for Stampede, the annual turnover in 1971 was 185%. And for McGurk, it was 148%. So again, we see Stampede, Stampede has a faster pace with wrestlers coming and going at a higher rate than they did in McGurk's territory. The territory fact sheet also looks at how many house shows we have in our records and how complete we believe that to be. For Stampede, we have 296 house shows in 1971, an average of 5.7 per week. And based on our knowledge that they usually had Sundays off and they usually only ran one house show per night, I estimate this to be between 90 and 95% complete. So we have a... Oh, wow. Fairly complete record for Stampede. In addition, we look at not only the average size of the crew, but its composition. How many wrestlers were main eventers? How many were upper mid-carders, etc. using our spot ratings? Stampede had 17.2 wrestlers on average on their roster at any given time, whereas McGurk's territory had 26.2. But it's also interesting to note that McGurk's territory had more main eventers, not only as a whole, but also on a percentage basis. Which makes sense, because remember, they're running three shows a night. Yeah. And shows could be headlined by a singles match or a tag match. So, basically, here's how I see it. If they're running three shows per night, that means at any given time, they need to have between three and five babyface acts and three to five heel acts capable of being in the main event. And they get rotated in and out. So McGurk's territory had 
on average, 8.8 wrestlers considered main eventers. So, you know, uh, between four and five baby faces and between four and five heels. Usually one of those top acts was a tag team, uh, one baby face tag team and one heel tag team, plus a couple of singles guys like Watson Hodge. And then whoever they're feuding with like Dusty or Dr. X or Kirby or whoever. In the case of Stampede, they had an average of 2.8 main eventers at any given time. Typically the, singles title was uh, put higher on the cards than the tag team titles. So your main events are typically going to be singles matches, which means they only need two main eventers on any given show. So if they have on average 2.8, that means at any given time, there might be whoever the champion is, whoever the North American champion is. If he's a babyface, there's probably two heels that could be considered main eventers. And if there's a heel champion, there could be two baby faces that could be considered main eventers. Uh, We also look at win-loss percentage, but we don't do it by wrestlers. This is the first time we've been incorporating wins and losses into our data. But what we're doing is we're looking at how often baby faces win versus how often heels win. And how that differs based on match placement. Uh, we've, we've all heard the concept of babyface territories or heel territories, and this might help us better categorize the territories. So last month in Leroy McGurk's territory, babyfaces won 57% of the time, and this is only when there's a clear babyface versus a clear heel. This doesn't count the battles of the bullies or the scientific you know, prelims. This is only face versus heel matches. Babyfaces won 57%, heels won 32%, and 11% were draws. But in main events, the babyfaces won 69% of the time, the heels won 25%, and 6% were draws. So in the main events, the babyfaces are much more likely to win. In Stampede, things are much more evenly split. Babyfaces won 43% of the time, heels won 40%, and 17% were draws. And in main events, the heels actually won more often than the babyfaces. The heels won 44%. The babyfaces won 38%. And 17% were draws. So that right there gives us insight and and shows us a big difference between these two territories. In 1971, McGurk's territory had Watts and Hodge as your homesteading, you know, heroes. And Stampede didn't really have that homesteading babyface. We'll see the top babyface for the year didn't even debut until, I think, late March. Hmm. So there's not really that, you know, homegrown star that is, you know, the, the, the defender of all that is good and just. And thus, because of that, you, you find the heels are, uh, they have yeah. the advantage. Let's take a look at the roster. Using our spot rating statistic, we split them up into categories based on their average position on the card. Uh, Overall, in 1971, there were seven wrestlers whose average spot rating was a .80 or above, which puts them in the category of main eventers. And we have four babyfaces and three heels. On the babyface side, Les Thornton, John Quinn, Bob Lewick, and Emil Dupre. Emil or Emil? I always say Emil. But okay. I don't know if that's right. It could be Emil. Uh, my friend who's a ring announcer for Game Changer Wrestling, uh, Emil J. So perhaps I'm just used to to pronouncing it as Emil because of him. 
Ah. On the heel side, we've got Buddy Killer Austin, Black Angus Campbell, and Bob Sweetan. Now, on the site, we have a profile on Les Thornton, written by our pal David Gibb, author of the book How to Ace Your Comeback. And that profile looks at Les's career leading up to this big run in Stampede, and also speculates why he was given such a prominent role in Stu Hart's territory. And a lot of it has to do with the success of Billy Robinson just a couple of years earlier in the territory, and the fact that Les uh, came from the same background as Billy. It also looks at some of his bigger feuds and matches while here, including a series of matches against NWA World Heavyweight Champion Dory Funk Jr. that certainly put him on the map. You know, when when I think of Les Thornton, you know, the first thing that comes to my head is his uh, run as a junior heavyweight champion in the early 80s. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see him not just a heavyweight, but also the top babyface Yep. In a territory in 1971. He actually, he won the North American title here by beating Abdullah the Butcher. Huh. Wow. So, yeah, you know, it's not just that he was the champion. It was that he was the guy that I think Abby had debuted for Stampede early in 1970. And for most of, you know, a year plus, he was, you know, a monster heel. He was the champion for a while. Uh, he he was the one we mentioned earlier, Stu Hart, coming out of retirement. They actually built to Stu versus Abdullah. And Stu couldn't even beat Abdullah. And so Les being the one to put him away surely shows uh, how much faith Stu had yeah. in Les. Uh, he just debuted in Canada in January of 71. Uh, he spent a couple of months in Vancouver before coming here. This is really cool, like the profile uh, that, that that David Gibb wrote here. I like the the a couple of points he brings up that were really interesting that didn't really occur to me. It seemed pretty obvious after after having them spelled out uh, for me by David. But um, but just coming to Canada before coming to the U.S. because of just the ease of I guess the work visa that being easier. And he also mentions like the you know the British expats living you know in in Canada looking for an easily relatable hero and that he fills that role too. So it's a really, really interesting. I never, it didn't occur to me until having it spelled out. Just like Bruno and Pedro were draws in New York because of the demographics there. The same thing applies here. So it's, you know, if you, if you only thought of less as that, you know, junior heavyweight from the eighties, you really need to read David Gibbs profile and see who's much more than that. Um, We talk a little bit, about some of the other main eventers, uh, John Quinn, who was uh, might be better known to WWF fans as the Virgil, the Kentucky Butcher. Yes. Bob Lewick, I believe, is a is a CFL player, Canadian Football League player, who wrestled for about three years, mostly in the off season of football. And of course, Dupree was there uh, seasonally for a few years. He would spend his summers. Uh, with Grand Prix in New Brunswick. So because of that, a lot of times they don't do they don't do a lot with him. He's given a good spot, a good role, but he's not necessarily winning titles because they know he's not staying particularly long. Same thing happens when uh, the Cormier brothers come came to Mid Atlantic every winter. <laughs> they would, uh, you know, they would summer in Canada and they would winter in, in the Carolinas. So yeah. they were always given a nice spot a nice role. And there they were usually wrestling as the K brothers, Bobby, Terry, and Rudy. But they were never really given title runs, like, because they knew that once, uh, once the snow began to thaw, 
they would be heading back up north. Yep. Uh, on the heel side, um, the less said about Sweet Tan, the better. Black Angus <laughs> Campbell, another uh, import from the UK, from Scotland. Oh, yeah. And again, I believe this was his uh, first year in North America. He and was, I believe he, he also in started in Vancouver. Central States. Didn't, wasn't he, didn't he show up in the Central States when we did the uh, Almanac? Uh, that would have been in 73. So that, yeah. he was there then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he was managed by Percival A. Friend yes. in, uh, in Central States. And then Betty, Buddy Killer Austin, who is he's one of those guys... His his run ended just before people our age, John, uh, you know, were, were getting into wrestling. And even, mm. even now, sort of my knowledge base sort of starts at 1971. Yep. And that is really towards the end of Buddy's career. I know he was a frequent partner of Orton, of Bob Orton Sr. later in his career. Um, but he's a guy that, uh, just one of those guys that seems to have been a lot of places and was held in high regard, was always in a main event spot, holding titles wherever he went. And it's just one of those guys, just before the age of, you know, where wrestling footage became more prevalent or that he didn't wrestle in the places where we have good footage from the 60s. Yeah, that's rough. That's a rough spot for a lot of these guys to be in, unfortunately. For, so, for history's yeah. sake. So, so, you know, we, we will never, you know, we'll never be able to necessarily see how good he was in the ring. We can only look at his career accomplishments and look at stats like his spot rating and titles held to get a, a feel for what his role was. Uh, upper mid carters, a little bit further down the cards. We've got uh, some wrestlers you're familiar with and some you might not be familiar with. On the babyface side, Carlos Belafonte, who is better known as Carlos Colon. The Mighty Ursus, Michelle Martell, older brother of Rick Martell, Bill Cody, Dan Crawford, who we've talked about on this podcast in the past, and Danny Babich, who also wrestled in Puerto Rico as Danny Martell at one point. Hmm. On the heel side, we've got Abdullah the Butcher, Moose Morowski, the team of Chin Lee and Sugi Sito, Earl Black, and Paul Peller, and he didn't use the nickname here, but in other places, he had this great nickname. He was Stompin' Paul Peller. Wow. I would That's imagine cool. he didn't not he couldn't use that name in Stampede because of Archie Gouldy. You can't have a Stompin' You can't have a Stompin' stomper. guy underneath the Stomper. Yeah. That's like having a butcher when you have the butcher on top. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was one wrestler who came in as a babyface, but after a few weeks turned heel, and that was Johnny Warlance, who ends huh. up having a little feud with Carlos Belafonte. Huh. Now, you might be surprised to see Abdullah in the upper mid-carder category. Uh, again, this is based on their average weekly spot rating when they're in the territory. And Abby was here in 1971 through, I think, mid-April. And his average spot rating was a .79. So he's just barely under the cutoff for main eventers, which is a 0.8. But it's interesting because if you look at his week-to-week -week spot rating, there's a period of time where he is in the mid-cards, where his spot rating is around the 0 0.5, 0 0.6 range. Hmm. And looking at the cards, it looks like they were running an angle where Abby, even though he was the North American champion, he wasn't defending the title. He had a manager at the time, a manager named Rene Trudeau. So... I picture a scenario where Trudeau says there's not suitable competition. So Abby 
refuses to put the title up for, you know, to put the title on the line. Yeah. And ends up in non-title matches against mid-card guys. And he huh. loses many of these matches by disqualification. So again, without video footage, we try and figure out what's going on in our heads. And I could easily see Abdullah just beating the crap out of these mid-card guys and getting disqualified and not caring because he's a bloodthirsty lunatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. That, you know, to me is the most likely explanation. I know I recently joined a stampede group on Facebook. It's called Ring-a-Ding, Ring-a-Ding-Dong Dandy. Oh. So uh, hopefully... Some of those folks will be able to answer the questions we have about 1971. From what I've seen in the group so far, most of them didn't, you know, didn't come along till later. Uh, and that's the problem with, you know, doing the early 70s. It's hard to find folks that are alive today yeah. that were fans and not just fans, but, you know, were teenagers or above at the time to, to be able to, you know, have a, a better recollection of things. So that's why, you know, because we don't have the, this information, these these firsthand accounts, we use what we have from newspaper reports and clippings to try and model what we think happened. And so that's what I think happened with Abby. He had just finished a big feud with Sweet Daddy Siki at the end of 1970. And if you look at the roster, we listed the baby faces earlier. There's not a good challenger for him looking at who's there at the beginning of 1971. Bob Lewick being a football player who's wrestling part-time, throwing him in the ring against Abdullah is probably not a good idea. Um, Dupre is leaving, and they always know he's going to leave. So if they know he's leaving in the spring, you can't, if Abby's going to lose the title in the spring, you can't put it on Emil because he won't be around to defend it. So well, they end up building to an angle where Stu Hart comes out of retirement and goes around the horn with Abdullah a few times. And then Les Thornton shows up, and you can tell they were going to give Les a big a big push from from the get go because after his first week in the territory, they give him title shots the following week. Hmm. Now again, part of that is because they also don't have anybody else on hand, um, but also because they did so well with Billy Robinson a couple of years earlier, they felt let's put another Brit in that spot. Uh, I think it takes a couple of weeks of matches with Abby before Les wins the title, but he got his first title shot a week after coming in. And then after Abby drops the title, he finishes up a few weeks later, but they bring in Archie Goldie for, I think, a total of nine shows, three of which were against Abby. And when they when they had the match with Abby in Calgary, they actually had it at a larger venue than they normally ran. Uh, Instead of the Victoria Pavilion, they ran the Stampede Corral, and they drew 6,500 fans for Abdullah the Butcher versus the Stomper Archie Gouldy, which is a huge crowd for the day. Uh, I think the regular venue in Calgary held max 3,000, and maybe even 2,000 is is a more accurate number. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure. So to move to the bigger venue and, you know— more than double the capacity of their normal venue. Yeah. That's that's pretty strong. Unless yeah. would hold up uh would end up holding the North American title throughout August. He lost it to Black Angus Campbell, who held it for a couple of months before dropping it to John Quinn. Campbell regained the title and then lost it rather quickly to Bob Lewick. And then Lewick dropped it before the end of the year to Kurt von Hess. And Kurt came pretty late in the year. But we're going to talk a little bit about Kurt Von Hess. You know, someone needs to start a Charting the German Wrestlers podcast. 
<laughs> it's just, it's so confusing because you've got the Von Brauners, mm-hmm. the Von Stroheims, and the Von Steigers, which were three different brother tag teams. And the brothers in each of them were Carl and Kurt. Yeah. So yeah, it's not it's, just that the, the, you know, the names can sound the same, but there's all, you know, there's three Carls and three Kurts. As a matter of fact, there were two different Kurt Von Brauners. And if I'm recalling correctly, the second Kurt Von Brauner had previously been one of the Von Stroheims. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very, <sighs> yeah, I need to get out the whiteboard. I feel like Charlie yeah, and Zoe yeah. Sunny with the little red strings going from, you know, it's, it's fake tough, German to fake German. It's tough to keep track of. And with the Von Hesses, while there was a Carl Von Hess and a Kurt Von Hess, the two never teamed up. No. And on some occasions, early in the career of Carl Von Hess, he was billed as Kurt Von Hess. Yeah, it's very, <sighs> very interesting. And I've heard, I've, I think, I don't know if it's correct, but I've, I've, I've read, I've heard it mentioned as, as Kurt Von Hess sort of being the last Nazi standing, as it were. Um, he's around until almost late, I think like 86, maybe? Yeah, um, well, I, I, by, after that point, there was one more German standing, but he was a baby face, and that was Von Raschke. He was, he was dressing up like the fabulous one, though, at that um, point. Well, there were, no, there were German stormtroopers in Continental um, later. Okay. But oh, as yeah, far as the, Chris Colt was one, right? Wasn't Chris Colt? A, a, yeah, he was Chris Von Colt, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. So, okay. but as far as the ones who had been, had been a name yeah. wrestler that okay, were okay. sort of at the tail end of their career, you might be right. Uh, Kurt Von Hess was born William Terry. He was born in Hamilton, Ontario in 1942. His earliest confirmed matches were in the mid-60s, at first wrestling as Bill Terry in the Northeast and in Canada. I think he first started using the name Kurt Von Hess in 1970. And that was several years after Carl Von Hess, whose real name was Frank Fackety. F-A-K-E-T-T-E. Maybe it rhymes with spaghetti. Maybe it's spaghetti. <laughs> but he had retired. So uh, Carl and Kurt were, were never a team. Von Hess used the stereotypical German wrestler tropes of the day. Goose stepping, the claw, etc. However, on at least one occasion, John, he used a foreign object so outlandish and vile that he was fined... $100, which is the equivalent of a little over $700 today, by the oh Calgary Boxing and Wrestling Commission. So, John, read read this, this article and tell us what this horrible, disgusting weapon was that caused him to be fined $100. Professional wrestler Kurt Von Hess was fined $100 Friday by the Calgary Boxing and Wrestling Commission for striking an opponent with a popsicle stick. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> during a televised match on the January horror. 28th. Uh, Mayor Rod Sykes, commission chairman, also witnessed the bout and laid the complaint. He said the action was potentially dangerous in influencing young members of the audience. This gets better near the end. Uh, the commission was told the wrestler pulled a stick from his trunks and stuck his opponent, struck his opponent, rather, on the face. The mayor also said the wrestler created the disgusting, in quotes, illusion of deliberately biting his opponent and licking blood. A popsicle stick. <laughs> A popsicle stick. It's funny. It's like, uh, as far as like the, the transformation into to Kurt Von 
past. He never really talked openly about whether it was a given promoter's idea or his idea. I was listening to an interview with his daughter, and she even asked him about how this, you know, over the years, like how how did this come to be? And sh- and she says that he was like very always very careful about how he answered those questions and how he just like kayfabed her until his death, until he passed away. Uh, like even though you know the business had been exposed, he still felt an obligation to protect it, you know? Um, And she surmised that when his dad was working for Pedro Martinez in Buffalo, up there, upstate, some of the guys he worked with there were, you know, other, other German guys doing the same, doing that sort of thing, Hans Schmidt, Hans Mordier. And he saw how successful those guys were, not only at getting heat, but also financially. And the way she describes it almost reminds me of like an interview with, I think, John Lennon on either Dick Cavett show or the, or the Mike Douglas show where he talks about, you know, deciding to be, become a rock and, and roller. Like he remembers seeing Elvis on TV when he's a little kid with the screaming girls and saying to himself, like, oh, that looks like a good job. I imagine that sort of thing clicking for for, for Big Bill Terry after seeing these, right. these, these Germans guy do their thing. Yeah. You mentioned his daughter. Page, uh, there's an article on ProWrestlingStories.com that features comments from Page about uh, mm. growing up as the daughter of a hated professional wrestler. Um, one of the things I found interesting is that Page said they moved 17 times yeah. in 10 years. Insane. Insane. Yeah. I like, mean, yeah, for, and, you know, for a young child to have to, you know, keep changing schools and try and find new friends, that, that's got to be really traumatic. There's yeah there's a there's there's the article on pro wrestling stories and there's also also a link there to a, a full interview with her on the on a podcast the the Dan and Benny in the Ring podcast I thoroughly enjoy hearing the daughters of territorial era heels tell stories about their fathers I love this interview and I, and I love like hearing Pampero Firpo's daughter Mary I think her name is delightful to listen to hear her tell her stories about her father and I. I don't want to sound sexist or, or reinforce gender stereotypes, anything like that. But I'm really fascinated by the, this particular father-daughter dynamic. I feel, especially during the 60s and 70s, maybe fathers exhibited a slightly softer side to their daughters that maybe a son wouldn't necessarily right. see. Yeah, and I think the way the adult daughters relate these stories and their perspectives, especially unique and, and very interesting. There's so many good stories from the wrestling side and also from the personal side, like you said. Yeah. You know, Highly recommend this 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 interview and then this little article. Very very interesting. Yeah, and we, we've also had some uh, video footage of Kurt von Hessen action. Uh, keep in mind, John always uh, goes out and curates uh, some uh, selected footage that can be found on the YouTube, and we put it together in a playlist. So be sure to subscribe to the Charting the Territories channel on YouTube. Uh, to get no, to be able to access these playlists. So tell us a little bit about what you found uh, with Kurt Von Hess in action. Kurt, the first one I, I, I went to was a, a Kurt Von Hess versus uh, Mark Lewin from, from Detroit. I think this is 76. Um, and it's just kind of a, it's kind of a brawl, a lot of kicking, punching, um, some nice bumps from Lewin. Uh, the closest we get to, to, to wrestling here is a couple, couple forums. What I really liked about this match um was von hess you really get uh uh his facial expressions you get to see those he gets that that dreaded claw on mark lewin at one point and they zoom in on his mug and he really nails that sort of like you know that crazy 
almost that killer Carl Krupp sort of bugged out eyes. Yeah. That crazy nails that really, really well. Um, that's that, that uh, personally, the, the more convincingly, convincingly crazy you can look, the more forgiving I am of any holes <laughs> in your wrestling work. And this is, you know, the match is not very, very exciting, but he looks crazy and it's awesome. I think Don Kent does a run at the end and like, it's Lewin with a chair and there's more action with this Don Kent running with a chair and Lewin getting color and all that. than there was in the actual match, but it's really cool to see, uh, Kurt Von Hess, you know, do that crazy claw hold. Yeah. So, look. so speaking of Mark Lewin, I'm going to ask you this. Cause you probably know a lot more about Mark Lewin than I, oh. um, was there a quick and sudden drop off in his work rate, his abilities in the ring, or is it just since he's working for Sheik, no one cares about work rate, so why should he? Because Lewin doesn't do a whole lot here. Uh, and I've always, you know, thought of Lewin as, as being a, a really good guy in the ring. So was it just a matter of as he once he hit a certain age, it just uh, his ability fell off a cliff or what? I don't know, because I've seen him do more later than this. Okay. So it might have just been, he's a babyface working for the Sheik. He knows, you know, there's only so much he can do and there's only so much he needs to do because uh, if, you know, half the time he's going to be working against the Sheik and he doesn't need to do anything. So that that could be it. I had this in my notes of this match, too. Like, I think this match served more uh, to set up like a Mark Lewin versus Don Kent match. I think right. that was more the purpose of this match than to feature uh, Kurt Von Hess. So I think maybe he was just saving his... Yeah. saving that saving the good the stuff for the end i guess for the when um, it's off camera yeah okay. right. <laughs> I also, fair enough i also uh chose a little a little clip from memphis here with the assassins um not those assassins these assassins it's kurt von hess and i think roger smith i think randy collie also played one of these assassins but i Pretty sure this is Roger Smith. Yeah. Who it's hard to get right, but uh, both the assassins—they're wearing masks, but they both talk during the interview segment. And one of them is definitely, you know, from Tennessee or the surrounding areas, <laughs> and one of them definitely is not. So it's pretty clear yeah. upon hearing them talk which one is Kurt. This was really interesting, especially after hearing the interview with his daughter, um, hearing about how much he loved the anonymity of working under a mask and being able to grow his hair out for the first time in years and shave his goatee. Um, and just a lot of horror stories about, you know, kids coming up to him in Detroit and getting hassles and darts thrown out and stuff like that. So just the, having the mask on, he can go out and, and live his life for, for a few months. Um, I also got a Kurt von Hess, another German, Carl von Steiger, against Mil Maskeris and Dos Kairos from Japan, the, the Kairos brothers, we can call them. Um, I want to include this because sometimes you see interesting stuff out of American guys working in Japan uh, more so than you do in their U.S. TV matches. That's not really the case here, but I wanted to give it a shot. Um, <laughs> Von Hess here is in the singlet with the short tights for those of you keeping keeping score at home. They just do their methodical sort of heel stuff, brawling, punching, kicking. Um there's actually a really cool spot by the by the by the Dos by the Karras brothers is <laughs> where they do that. You know, the flying cross body chop that Mill does or he does it. They sort of do a double version of that. And I thought that was a really nice visual. Also the the crowd for the second week in a row, I'm amazed by the 
the volume of a Japanese crowd and how much they are, they are into Mill Mascaras and Dos Caras here. Um, my favorite of the Von Hess matches, not surprisingly, is this five-minute TV match with Ric Flair from the summer of 84. Um, I just thought it'd be cool to contrast Von Hess working in, in Crockett in 84 versus Detroit in the mid-70s. Right. Um, as, you know, we, I think we've talked about this before, too, with, with Flair and, and race. Like, as cool as the epic 60-minute Flair matches or a 2-3 fall match with Steamboat is, I love watching Flair work these short sort of nothing TV matches. He just gets so much out of them. And Von Hess here. I think I think they did an angle on TV a couple of weeks earlier where Wahoo and Tully had attacked Flair, giving him a pile driver or something. So in this match, Von Hess works Flair's neck. He gives him like the hangman's neck breaker and almost does like this cutter type move also while draping Flair's neck over the rope. Um, so it's really cool to see that stuff I hadn't seen from him that made this match really interesting, even though it was only five minutes. Um, Flair does a really cool Ray Stevens corner bump, his later signature bump, and it looks great the way he takes it here all the way to the floor. Flair, of course, wins with a figure four later, but this is by far the best Von Hess match that I've seen in any of the matches I chose, and probably one of the best of his online uh, that, that you're going to find out there. Um, probably my favorite and the one I enjoyed the most out of all of them. Okay, so you can see all those, all that footage of Kurt Von Hess on our YouTube channel, put together in a playlist. Now, you mentioned uh, the summer of 84. So by the mid-80s, he was winding down his career in the ring. But in 1985, he still found the opportunity to get in a little bit of trouble. In December of that year, at a show in Montague, Massachusetts, he reportedly injured the referee of his match, pushing him face-first into his opponent, causing the referee to fall to the mat and suffer four bruised ribs. Yeah. Now, John, you noticed the name of his opponent that night, uh, Marine Mike Moore. And we believe that this is uh, the Motor City Madman. Could it be? I, I think I think so. Um, looking at uh, Madman's career, around that time, his only documented appearances are for, for North in the Northeast. He's usually working Crockett or WWF TV tapings when they're in Baltimore or upstate New York, places like that. So it's very possible huh. he would have been based in Massachusetts yeah. in the mid eighties. Uh, it's just one of those guys, you know, I, I, he came out of nowhere and was brought to WCW in, I think 89 or early 90 teamed up with the big cat, my pal Curtis Hughes, Oh, yeah. who currently lives in Atlanta, uh, and they just did not get over at all. But, John, that's not the only name in that article that you should, that wrestling fans would be familiar with. The aforementioned referee that got injured, what's his name? Uh, take a look at that article and tell us the name of the referee. William Silverman. That's Billy Silverman from WCW. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Why did, the, I didn't even make, the age, make that connection. The age is a, it lists his age in the article is 23 and Silverman was absolutely born in 1962. Huh. So yeah, so that featured, that featured not only Kurt Von Hess, but also future WCW star, the Motor City Man Man and future WCW referee, Billy Silverman. Huh. That's a lot oh, of star power in Mon one match in Montague, <laughs> Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even make that connection. Wow. Yeah, so there you go, listeners. That's uh, you can use this information to wow your friends and family with your knowledge of wrestling trivia. And uh -oh. John, speaking of knowledge of wrestling trivia, 
Oh. It is now time. Time, baby. for John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. John, you're on a bit of a hot streak. Oh man. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, the last two months you've gotten all four questions right. And you even still have one lifeline in the bank, one extra credit in the bank that can be used if you get one wrong for a second chance. Oh, I'll tell you, I pick, I pick these cards out of the, uh, the board game, Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia at random. Okay. I'm afraid that saying this is going to jinx it, but this is a really easy one, and you should get all four. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get one. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's see how you do. Okay. Name two wrestlers, both nicknamed Blackjack, who teamed to win the WWF Tag Team title in 1975. Blackjack Mulligan and Blackjack Lanza. That is correct. Okay. Question number two. Is the Oklahoma side roll ever used in pro wrestling? Was that a Jack Briscoe finisher? Well, if I answer, if I tell you that, then it answers oh, the question. Well, oh, it, yes, depending yes, on yes, the answer. It's a yes or no. Yeah, there's a yes or no question. I'm going to go yes. You are correct. Yeah, if I, yes. if I told you, yes, Briscoe used that, well, then that answers the question definitively. Yes, does, it, does it say that it was Briscoe finisher? It just says... It doesn't say anything, um, but okay. I believe you're correct. Okay. Question number three. What is the reported relationship between Ivan and Nikita Koloff? Uncle and nephew, correct? Yes, that is correct. Three for three. The pressure's on. Can he get all four? What's interesting is the fourth category on in this trivia game is supposed to be true-false, but this is not a true-false question. <laughs> On Gordon. Uh, yes, uh, Gordon was in the sauce uh, uh, when <laughs> putting together this card, I guess. <laughs> Complete the soliism. His face has become a blank mask. Crimson, crimson mask. There you go. Piece of cake, four for yeah. four, three months in a row that John has aced yeah. Gordon Soli's championship wrestling trivia. Great job. Thank you. Yeah, you were correct. That was probably the easiest. Uh, it was the easiest all four questions. I think there have yeah. been a couple of questions that are as easy as most of these, yeah. but never have all four on one card yeah. been that. I mean, the only tricky one was the Oklahoma side roll. And that's just one of those. The more you think about it, the you know, the more you're thinking, oh, he's trying to trick me somehow. And that's the yeah. name of a sandwich. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the sushi roll. If yeah. Uh, if this game has taught me one thing, it is to not think. <laughs> when it comes to, when it comes to you know evaluating and analyzing pro wrestling, the <laughs> thinking is only your enemy. Lowest common denominator, baby. Yes, Just there go you go. It. Yep. So uh, going back to Stampede Wrestling, we covered the North American title scene. Let's now look at the tag team division uh, with the international tag team titles. And one of the things we do on the website uh, with our A Year in the Life document is when we look at title histories and title lineages, 
we actually look at the length of title reigns and separate them out by baby faces and heels. We talked earlier about the concept of babyface territories or heel territories. Obviously, the majority of times a title changes, it goes from a face to a heel or a heel to the face. So you can't just, you know, say, well, more heels held it than baby faces because they're all going to be equal. But it's the lengths of those reigns that gives us information. And here in 1971, there were two babyface teams that held the international tag team titles and three heel teams. However, the two babyface teams only held the titles for a total of four weeks during the year, while the heel teams held them for 37 weeks, and they were vacant for 11 weeks. So right there, this tells us the promotion preferred to have heels as champs. And I think this is similar to the WWWF. They always had a babyface heavyweight champion. And for that reason... A lot of times the Intercontinental and or the WWF tag team titles would be on heels. Yep. Maybe they'd hold them longer than the babyfaces while they had Bruno or Backlund or Hogan, you know, uh, camping out uh, at the top of the cards with the top singles title. Uh, so this tells us the promotion preferred to have heels as champs. And uh, I said they were vacant for 11 weeks. And that's further evidence of this. The champs at the beginning of the year were Bob Sweetan and Stompin' Paul Peller. In March, the team split up. And this is interesting because there was no turn. There was no split up. They, in storyline, they voluntarily agreed to go their separate ways with Sweetan wanting to go after the North American title. This could have been one of those things where once they put the belt on Les and Abdullah was leaving, they didn't have anybody for Les to face. Uh, and they oh, had Sweetan yeah. as the top heel, but he had the tag team belt. So they just decided to sort of get rid of those because Peller stays a while longer, long enough, you know, that they didn't need to vacate them when they did. So I think this is just an example. Stu didn't even really bother to slap together a babyface team um, because he probably needed to wait until he had a heel team ready to go. Uh, oh. There's really no heel team of note. You have... Tiger Joe Tommaso teaming with a rookie named Ed Sullivan. And uh, I really don't, he doesn't seem to have gotten much of a push. So I don't think he put on a really big show when he would wrestle, (laughs) but they end up later on in the spring. uh, They bring in Earl black and they team him up with Tommaso and, and they seem to gel really well and get over as a team. So at that point um, they had been running a quote unquote tournament which really wasn't a tournament. They just had matches and they said it was a tournament match. And then at some point they say, oh, now it's the semifinals. <laughs> this was what this was what McGurk did in 76 after Hodge's uh, yeah. accident. Yep. They, yeah. well, they would call them, they wouldn't call them tournament matches. They would call them tournament eliminators. And in mm. theory, anyone who lost would be eliminated from competition, but that only applied to that city. And if Tom Jones, you know, lost to Ron Starr in Alexandria, he might still be in contention, you know, in Greenville. Uh, And at some point they say, all right, it's time for the semifinals. Um, And what they ended up doing, I think they had a, the tournament came down to a one night, six man mini tournament where they had the four quote unquote survivors of their tournament, which means anyone that had won a match at any point and was still in the territory. 
<laughs> and then they brought in uh, the two, the last two champions that, uh, aside from Hodge, Ken Mantell and Hiro Matsuda. Uh, yeah. But here they just have, they take random tag matches and say they're tournament matches and so on and so forth. And eventually the belts end up on Tommaso and Black. So, you know, they didn't even really care to switch the titles from Sweetan and Peller to a babyface team. They just sort of vacated them. Again, proof that they they preferred having a heel team as the tag title, as the tag team champions. And Tommaso sure sounds like an interesting character. Uh, he was nicknamed Tweet Tweet because in his interviews, he would blame uh, his various ills and, and misdeeds on birds. The birds told me to do it or it was the birds. And this led to one of the more, more hilarious stories I've ever read uh-huh. where a fan brought a box containing live birds to a wrestling show, kept them in the box, in the sealed box, you know, for the early matches. And as soon as Tommaso came to the ring for his match, the fan released them. And the birds apparently, you know, freaked out and flew around and pooped all over everybody. <laughs> as bird, yeah, bird, as bird too. Yeah. Yeah, well. there's a profile uh, on Tommaso by David Gibb. You can learn a little bit more about his background and uh, his year, 1971, and why his team with... Earl Black took off and, and what happened to the team at the end of the year that put Tommaso in a, a role that's unfamiliar to him. Now, so, John, have you ever heard stories of wild animals or pets uh, interfering in a wrestling show? That's really funny. I, I'm surprised there aren't you don't hear about more of these considering like, uh, you know, how many of these old wrestling cars were at that, you know, livestock you know, arenas uh, back back in these days or, you know, infestations of like bed bugs or something like that. Um, I remember just a couple of years ago on it was on an episode of Monday Night Raw. Um, I think this was uh, pre pre covid because there were people there. It wasn't like the covid, the weird covid shows. Um it, but it was R- Ronda Rousey, so maybe 2018, 2019. Uh, there was a bat flying around ringside with Ronda Rousey. I think she was watching the match from uh, the ring apron, and she was out there getting freaked out because there's, I mean, there's a bat flying like around the ring, and she acknowledges the announcers acknowledge it. Um, I want to say it was at the Greensboro Coliseum, and I have to have to look it up to confirm. But yeah, it was really, why, really why cool. they didn't why they didn't reach out to Gangrel and bring him back a week later <laughs> is beyond exactly. me. <laughs> yeah. Now yeah, I of course remembered. Were you a fan of the Global Wrestling Federation? I was yeah. not not a fan. I'm not okay. very well versed so, in, in the. Promotion, so they had a wrestler. But... They had a wrestler called the Rude Dog. And one time on TV. Um, while he's wrestling, a very obvious plant female fan in the crowd gets up and walks around with a cat, hmm. uh, which causes the rude dog to go out of the ring and chase the cat and get counted out. <laughs> so that was a stage example. But as far as, yeah, as far as, you know, a wild animal interrupting the festivities, aside from the birds and the bat. Yeah. That could be, and that's interesting because Joe Tommaso earlier in his career wrestled under a mask as the Bat. Yeah, yeah. So it could have yeah. been, hey, could have been him for all we know. I'm surprised that yeah, I was really surprised. Like there were, there's not more uh, incidences of you know bat infestation and in, you know in the rafters. You right. know what I mean? 
right. that's where bats live, the rafters. You know, uh, I was surprised there's not more. I, th- I think I've been on shows where the, where there were birds flying around in the building that that sort of got caught inside, uh, but they didn't really they didn't cause the commotion that this <laughs> box of birds seems to have done birds. in Calgary. <laughs> so yeah, but you know, we're talking about titles. And this is part of a larger conversation. If you've listened to podcasts for a length of time, you know that I'm not I'm not a fan of titles, title reigns being the be all end all of a wrestler's accomplishments. I think because there's never been any quote unquote wrestling statistics that people were sort of drawn to the idea of title reigns as a barometer of success. And I certainly agree that a wrestler who held multiple titles in multiple territories over a large part of their career was almost certainly uh, they were a good wrestler. But the calculus behind any one individual title change is based on external factors that, that might not have anything to do with the wrestler himself. For example, when we were talking about McGurk's territory in 1971, there was a title change where Ramon Torres beat Rip Kirby. And I'm pretty sure that that was not the original plan. Um, Kirby had won the title from Danny Hodge. Hodge dropped it before going to Japan for about two months. And when Hodge came back, he was feuding with Kirby around the horn. They were scheduled to have a title defense with no time limit in Monroe, which I think was the third match in in a row in Monroe between the two. But Hodge reportedly got into a car accident on the way to the show and so they put Ramon Torres in his place and Torres beat Kirby to win the title. Mm. It just seems to me that this probably wasn't the plan and that Hodge was supposed to regain it since Hodge couldn't be there. They not only felt they needed to make good for the no-show, but Kirby was literally you know, about to finish up and he needed to drop the title anyway. Mm. So not only that title change, but then Dr. X winning the title from Torres in December of that year may very well also have been because they now needed to get it on a heel so that Hodge could win it back. Yeah. And this is very similar to the situation involving Hodge in 1966, where he got in a car accident and they ended up uh, retconning a controversial finish in a match with Lorenzo Parente into Parente winning the title. So, you know, and that's not a knock on Ramon Torres or Lorenzo Parente or Dr. X. It's just they're getting the title that particular time was for other reasons. So with all that being said, here's a question for you, John. We're talking about 1971. Probably the most famous title change in professional wrestling of 1971 happened in January of that year in the world's most famous wrestling arena, Madison Square Garden where an Ivan Koloff stunned everybody by beating Bruno Sammartino to win the WWF world title. So you can hear John, a pin drop, they say. Can yes, you can hear drop. a pin drop. So, John, I'm going to ask you a question. Why did Ivan Koloff win the title? Why did Ivan Koloff win the title? Correct. Um, hmm. Let's see. Well, I've I've heard that. Uh, why did well? Why did the title change occur? The title. Well, the t- I I think where you're going with this is they needed to get the belt to Pedro. Correct. And they needed 
a heel. Correct. And Ivan was selected because I think, uh, specifically because I think uh, Bruno recommended him as a guy who could be trustworthy with the title for that amount of time and would be willing to do do the do do what needed to be done in order right. to get the title to Pedro. Which, uh, let, let's be clear, that is, uh, uh, you know, good praise for Ivan, but also, I mean, isn't it because he's there at the time? I, yes, but I also think he was brought there specifically. He was brought, okay, that, and that, that I, I did think, not know, so that... I think, I yeah. might be wrong. Okay. I might be wrong. And I'm not, and I'm not sure either, but you know, for example, let's say Ivan had been somewhere else and let's, cause look at the other, look at the heels in the territory in early 71. Yep. The only other options are George Steele, uh, Baron Mikel Cicluna or Bulldog yeah. Brower. So sure. none of them are getting it. So if Ivan was brought in for that reason, I get that, but you know, it might also be a situation where he just happened to be the best possible available candidate. Yep. And that's not a knock on Ivan at no. all. I love Ivan. He's great. Um, but just saying that the circumstances between that singular title win were external to Ivan. It was because Bruno wanted to take some time off and thus they needed a body to win the title from Bruno and then drop it to Pedro. And Ivan was the best candidate for the job. So another question, John. Yes. Ivan Koloff's career after January 1971, if mm-hmm. he had not won that title from Bruno and lost it to Pedro, would anything about his career afterwards been different? Because hmm. I, I really think he still would have gone to the same places in the same roles. I mean, yes, every time he comes into a new place, they mention he's the guy that beat Bruno, but yeah. he st- had he not done that, had someone like Ernie Ladd done it instead... Ivan still would have had his big runs in all the places, Crocs. you know, yeah. AWA, Crockett, Georgia. Nothing would have been different had he mm-hmm. not been picked for that title. So as much as we talk about, you know, the circumstance of that title change, it's just a thing that happened yep. for various reasons. And it didn't, you know, for example, if, if you know, people think Ivan should be in the Hall of Fame for that reason only, yeah. I, that to me makes no sense. Uh, he was chosen to win a predetermined, you know, wrestling match because somebody had to yeah, had to win it from Bruno. Yep. And, you know, if you're saying you're voting for Ivan based on that, but if Ivan hadn't won that title, but everything else about his career had been the same, you wouldn't vote for him. That I don't quite get. Yeah. No, the same is true for, you know, Stan Stasiak. Yeah. Um, and that might even be Iron a better, Sheik. that might even be a better example. Well, I, you know, Sheik, Sheik makes perfect sense given the the politics at the time. Like yep. he was the right guy for yep. it. Stasiak, uh, you know, again, not a knock on Stan, but he was probably the best available candidate at the time. And also, and also, you know, we need to factor in how much lead time they had. Um, for example, the way you say it implies that they knew for a while that Bruno was going to drop the title and they made, they may have spent some time finding the right candidate, getting them in and pushing them. Sometimes, like in the case of Danny Hodge, you know, he gets in a car accident. They have no choice but to who's who else is in Monroe? Who are our baby faces? All right. You. You're getting it. So, you know, it's just sort of things to think about. Uh, We mentioned 
looking at the number of title changes in the territory to get their booking philosophy, as well as how long heels have it versus baby faces. Another way to do that is by tracking the number of turns. Again, places like Gulf Coast and Goulas, they're turning guys seemingly every week. In a territory like the AWA or the WWWF, it's a once a year thing. In Stampede, we mentioned they had four turns in 1971, although two of those were credited to the same wrestler, and that's Gil Hayes. He began the year as a babyface, turned heel in the spring. He then leaves for a few months to work for the new Grand Prix promotion in Montreal that started up in the summer of 71 before returning to Stampede in August. And he returned in the same role he had been in when he left that of a heel. But after a few weeks, he turned babyface and stayed in that role through the end of the year. But if that wasn't enough, while he did start 1971 as a babyface, he had turned in November of 1970. He had been a heel through November of 1970, turned babyface, then started 71 as a babyface, turned heel in the spring, leaves, comes back as a heel, turns babyface in the fall. <laughs> Is it safe to say, um, from the little footage that's out there of, of Gill and, and Stampede, from the listening to Ed Whalen on commentary, one sort of gets the feeling that Gil Hayes is sort of the big show of Stampede wrestling during the 1970s. Not that he got pushed off the roof of the Victoria Pavilion in a monster <laughs> truck or anything, just seemed to switch inside and he always yeah. seemed to more or less work like a heel and act like a heel you it know just seems it, to be more of a case of who he was wrestling against and who the people hated more it reminds <laughs> it reminds me of al lovelock's role in the mcgurk territory in the mid-60s where he's his days are numbered as an entering performer and i believe he's booking or if not booking has influence behind the scenes and it just seems like it's whatever al wants to do that week and whoever he wants to you know feud with regardless of whether the, his opponent is a babyface or a heel, he'll just put himself in against them and, and do whatever role is needed. But, you know, it seems like Hayes had been a heel for a while uh, in Stampede, and it seemed like the fans just sort of took to him, um, which, you know, that happens a lot of times with guys that stick around yeah. in the same place for too long. Familiarity doesn't breed contempt. It, it, it You know, you end up just, you know, uh, identifying with the guy. And it, it yeah. seems like you know, almost like a stone cold Steve Austin kind of a thing where he's just a kick-ass bad guy, but he's just a straightforward kick-ass guy. And when the time comes and the the baby faces need, a, you need someone to help them who's willing to fight dirty, they call on Gil, who was born yeah. Gilbert Lee Hayes in Fort mm -hmm. Francis, Ontario in 1939. He uh, was an amateur wrestler and boxer, and both he and his mom were fans of professional wrestling. He met Gene Kaniski in 1966, and shortly after that began training for a pro career and had his first matches in the fall of 1966. He spent most of his career in Canada. He did have a few tours of Japan for the IWE. He also had a nice run in Puerto Rico and also uh, in Polynesian later in his career. But as far as stints in the mainland United States, there were only two. Um, not counting when he worked for Vancouver and would sometimes work in Washington State. But in 1968, he worked in Central States. Yeah. And in 1974, he had a run in Florida. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, considering uh, when you factor in Dusty Rhodes here. I, 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 I found a, a clip of him in a, 
like a like a six man tag. Uh, or is it eight man tag or six man tag? Six I thought it was a regular tag, but I could be wrong. Where he's he's tagging uh, with uh, Bulldog Bob Brown, right? Uh, Tornado Murdoch and Dirty Dusty Rhodes. Yep. It's really interesting, like him being here with Dusty, and this is Dusty's like really like I think Dusty's first year of '68, um, and then later when he's in Florida in uh, the summer of 74, just a few months after Dusty has a huge baby face turn. So it's really interesting him working with Dusty there. Right. Being being <laughs> around for two important moments in, in Dusty's career. Yeah. One when he's a rookie and one when he is, you know, about to become the you know the king. The king really, of the really interesting. Yeah, yeah, he also in 68, not only did he find himself against opposite the ring from Dusty, he also worked Danny Hodge at least once. Huh. So, yeah, talk about, you know, being in the ring with a couple of big stars. And I think Hodge was in Florida when Hayes was there in 74. Oh, wow. So he might have crossed paths with him again towards huh. the end of Hodge's in-ring career. And the start of, you know, Dusty's huge run as uh, the biggest babyface in all of the land. Yeah. It's a, uh, I, I think he started out like initially in, in Winnipeg with, <laughs> I don't know why this cracked me up so much. Um, as, as wrestling as Gabby Hayes, the same name as the, the famous Western character actor, right? And he had this sweater he would wear, and it had the I don't know if his initials GH or just the letter G. But he went to Stampede a couple of years later. Stu had him keep the name so he could still use the sweater, just wrestle as wrestle under your real name, Gil Hayes. They sort of reminded me of Johnny Rods going to the West Coast and working as the Jabba. Arabian Madman yeah. Jabba Rook, using that name so he could use the same boots and tights that had his JR. Um, no, you know. Heaven forbid a professional wrestler <laughs> have to spring for a new pair of tights or boots. Trust me, uh, they, yeah. They, yeah, they they will like like some men with their uh, boxers or their drawers. They will literally, you know, keep them until you know they just become a puff of air and disappear. Yep. Yeah. Before buying new ones. <laughs> Um, so Gill held the North American title in Stampede once in 1973, but he had several runs with the international tag team titles with partners uh, such as Bill Dromo, Bob Sweetan, Tiger Tommaso, Benny Ramirez, and Mr. Hito. His last big run in Stampede came in 1979, where he feuded with Big Daddy Ritter, Junkyard Dog. Uh, and again, this seems, you know, this, this is a pretty obvious, the grizzled veteran making one last stand against the brash, young, you know, heel star mm -hmm. uh, of the moment in Big Daddy Ritter. Uh, in many ways, probably not dissimilar from the 1971 feud with Stu Hart and Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, except Hayes wasn't quite coming out of retirement, but he was, you know, it was clear they were building it as, you know, perhaps his last stand. Yep. Um, but... We mentioned Hayes was a heel for a good long while, and there's a several articles in newspapers that we will post on Twitter uh, that demonstrate his heelish tendencies. <laughs> um, in October 1967 in Edmonton, Hayes kept throwing poor Norton Jacobs over his head like a quarter of beef until the referee finally stopped. <laughs> That's a headline. It's just it was appalling. <laughs> Is that the headline for that one? I think so. Yeah. And then a couple of months later, also in Edmonton, Hayes used some terrible tactics, including outright punches below the belt in defeating Chuck McCracken. 
The article goes on to compare him to the Stomper, saying that while the Stomper is beyond salvation, but Gil Hayes has a lot of potential and with the right influences may amount to something. However, two and a half years later, it appears those right influences hadn't yet materialized. No. Uh, John, you have an article from the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. I believe the headline is Hayes Disgusts <laughs> Fans. Uh, it mentions him interfering in a match between Sweet Tan and Mighty Ursus, but read what he did earlier in the night. <laughs> Pull this one up. I got to okay. scroll down here. Oh, earlier, earlier. Hayes drew the wrath of the fans by kicking midget wrestler Joey Russell in the stomach to enable Sky Lolo and Little Brutus to win the mixed heavyweight midget match. So, yeah, so there you go. So, uh, <sighs> seems he was a bad guy for many years, but that the fans just grew to love his wacky antics and took to him and the promotion decided, okay, we can probably turn him babyface, and, you know, he, he doesn't have to change his routine. He can do the no. same things, but as long as he's, as long as he is, you know, uh, throwing heels over his head like a quarter of beef or punching them below the belt, the fans are okay with that. Yep. So we don't have any footage of him kicking midgets, but John, you did find a few matches that you wanted to feature. Again, we put this together uh, uh, as a playlist on our YouTube channel. So John, what did you find uh, for Gil Hayes on, yeah, on the YouTube? Not- not a ton yeah. out there. Um, the, there there's, the, the first one is, very, is a very short clip, uh, joined in progress from a broadcast of, I believe, Pro Wrestling Plus, which was sort of like the Canadian version of pro wrestling this week. This one is, of course, hosted by Ed Whalen. Um, this is one of the, the Matt classics they show. And this is, has uh, Gil teaming with Benny Ramirez, also Benji Ramirez, in non-mummy form versus Buffalo Bill Cody and, and Dan Crawford. Um, very brief, uh, footage of, of, of a blonde gill running in at the end. He mails Cody with a nice pile driver. Um, I just wanted to grab this cause it's the oldest footage I could find of, of gill on YouTube. But the, 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 the next match I found, I, I really, really liked, uh, joining in progress beginning of the second fall, I think with, uh, Gil Hayes versus Big Daddy Ritter Stampede from probably early 79, I guess, for the North American yeah, title. It would have had to have been 79. Well, I guess yep. it could have been late 78, but. The, uh, yeah, and Ed Whalen here is like, you know, he's technically a baby. I think he's technically a baby, but Ed Whalen's like, he's sometimes a hero, sometimes a villain, but the crowd is behind him here. Uh, and he was sort of reminds me of the way he looks at like late 70s Playboy Buddy Rose, minus the crazy Buddy Rose bumps. Um, this is really cool just to see JYD, and I even, can't call him JYD, see Sylvester Ritter as a heel. Uh, you know, he's got Hayes on the ropes at one point, and he's taunting, and he's like, come on, Great White Hope. And I was like, Jesus, like, this is in the crowd. It looks like, it, it's, I really like this match. Yeah. Um, it's not a technical masterpiece. Lots of punching and kicking elbows and body slams. Um, but like, it's a really interesting seeing Sylvester Ritter as a heel doing heel stuff. And also one of the criticisms you always hear about JYD is like, oh, it was great charisma, but the in-ring wasn't great, and we had to keep his matches short. This clip is 20 minutes long, starts after the match has been going on for 15 minutes, and he's quite capable, capable of keeping this match moving, interesting, compelling, doesn't seem blown up or anything. It's like we all know he had issues a few years later, but... Right, certainly, certainly a few years later, his, his uh, stamina took a hit. 
Yeah. But, but, like, and, and, but at the same time, even before that, he learned, you know, he didn't need to do all that exactly. in the role he was in. Whereas <laughs> here in Stampede, you know, several years earlier, he did need to do that. We talked about this was kind of a Hayes's last stand type of storyline. Hayes was relatively young for that role. I think he would have been 39 in early 79. Maybe he had just turned 40. So, you know, it's it's not like the grizzled, you know, vet, all, you know, willing to die for it, but someone who's near the end of his in-ring career, giving it one last go. You've also got a promo from June of 81. Yeah, I think he actually blew out both of the knees <laughs> shortly uh, after. Was he walking to the ring like Vince McMahon or something? <laughs> yes, probably. Uh, I mean, if you're going to blow your knees out, might as well be in Hawaii. Um, That's true. Great great promo like i love this promo like he's talking about how he's going to get the polynesian belt how he's got the he has the polynesian belt how he's going to win the high hawaiian belt the only reason he's not going to win the tag team belt is because only one of them um this is the promo that always gets cited when people mention that the rocks people's eyebrow was inspired by gil hayes and you can sort of sort of see that here um, his wife from around this time talked about how when they lived in Hawaii, 10 year old Dwayne would, would ride with them and he'd sit and watch them do their interviews. Gil here is not loud, very measured and calm, almost unnervingly. So especially for Hawaii where you're more accustomed to, you know, Curtis Iakea, Ripper, Ripper Collins yelling yeah. like maniacs. It really stands out. And it's not like a comedic eyebrow, like the rocks It's very, it's, a, it's a more of a, a menacing eyebrow you know and that's uh it's a, it's a very interesting short little clip here for, so you can compare the people's to eyebrow to the gil hayes <laughs> eyebrow. after yeah. wrestling gil worked as a security guard uh this actually led to a coming out of retirement angle in regina saskatchewan with bobby bass in 1980 but he also became an amateur woodworker uh, and there's a website for a summer camp run by gil's children it looks like the website is sort of outdated. It has a lot of broken links, but yeah. we were able to pull one picture off the site. We'll put that up on Twitter. It's a pretty unique uh, woodworking yeah. project. He takes a different type of different types of wood and almost jigsaw puzzle style. Yeah, uh, sort of puts them together into one objet d'art. Yeah, really cool. So it's pretty neat. Uh, Gil sadly passed away uh, last year. In July of 2022, at the age of 82. I saw there was an addendum to one of his obituaries, and it actually made me laugh out loud. Um, I think Gil was the kind of guy who would actually have a laugh at this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this. It mentioned that along with the... Uh, a, uh, <laughs> the, the bearing of Gil's ashes besides his brother James... His fixed car will be unveiled as he blew the engine when he had his massive heart attack. Because <laughs> <laughs> he died, like, in his car. Started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope that was posted with the intent of having at least people have, like, a chuckle or a smile. Because that, that is what I did when I read huh. this. And I, like I said, Gil, Gil definitely seems like the kind of guy that would... We're going to unveil the car that he yeah, had a that massive he, That he died attack. in. We, we redid it. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, that's a lot about Stampede in 1971. There's a lot more. If you go to our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, you can learn more about Stampede Wrestling in 1971. Just like John and I learn something new each and every month. And we always uh, state one thing we learn during the month in a segment 
at the end of this podcast, which we're ready for now. It's called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? So, uh, Lanny Poffo passed away earlier earlier this month, and a, a pal of mine, uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg, author, wrote for the WWF magazine for years, so on and so forth. Actually, fairly close to Lanny, like socially, like outside mm -hmm. of wrestling bubble like whenever Lanny was in New York in the same city they'd hang out get dinner whatever uh, and he's always had great stories to tell about wrestling personalities from his time at the magazine but had a ton about Lanny because they were friends for a long time and and and, and Keith was on a few podcasts in the past few weeks uh, busted open and Brian Solomon show and he told the stories I had never heard um, uh, before his father had started ICW, I believe the last promotion that he had worked for was was, was in, in Portland as Laney Holiday, I think. When, yep. While there, he wrestled Roddy Piper. And after after Angelo launches the promotion, he goes to work for him almost exclusively until the promotion folds. So this month I learned that at some point during that time, Roddy Piper uh, reached out to Laney Poffo, called him, and said that he had a spot for him waiting in Los Angeles. Uh, for Michael Bell. And the gimmick of that was sort of an effeminate heel, sort of similar to how his his his, his heel run as the genius had that slightly effeminate touch right. to it at times. Uh, and Lanny was apparently super excited about this opportunity, but you know, he runs it by his dad and Randy, and they sort of put the kibosh on it, saying they, they needed, wanted, needed Lanny to be there with them in ICW. And and he said that as much as Lanny loved his family, respected them. He always harbored a tiny bit of resentment toward them for you know them not letting him take advantage of that opportunity. And that's such an interesting perspective. And I, I kind of want your thoughts on this too. Because I really think the way Lanny's career panned out uh is probably, you know, best case scenario for him. Like I personally don't think if he goes to LA in 79, 80, his career is in any better shape than it is in 1989, 1990. If anything, I think he goes to L.A., you know, maybe Randy doesn't go to bat for him the way he did when, when Randy went to the WF. Who knows? What, what, what do you think about that? Do you I, think Again, it's one of those things I think – I don't think the future – his future direct trajectory would have changed significantly uh, based on that role either being a success or even being a flop. I don't think anything changes. I, I, yeah. I still – you know, I, I don't think – if Lanny left the family business and goes to LA, I don't think that that's that Randy's going to hold that grudge years later yep. uh, enough to keep Lanny out of the spot in the WWF. That, that yeah. seems a little excessive punishment, but yeah, that's a tough one. Cause you know, I mean, it's, it's a family business. He's, yep. you know, him and his brother are integral to the in ring um, because obviously, you know, Angelo knew that he could trust both of them. So if he has, uh, if if both his top baby face, well, if, if his top heel and one of his top baby faces are his kids, you yeah. know, uh, for the same reason that Vince put, <laughs> for the same reason that Vince built everything around Shane and Stephanie and Linda, you know, yep. in the mid aughts, because he knows, you know, they're not going to screw him over. It's sort of yep. the same thing here, and and that's that's tough because who knows what might have happened. On uh, my honest opinion. It probably would have worked, but L.A., I don't even know what L.A. was drawing or paying by that time because I yeah. think it was on its last leg. So I don't think it changes Lanny's bank account significantly. No. It just might have uh, might have given him a little more experience. And maybe when he goes to places like Mid-South a few years later, he's maybe one rung higher on the food chain mm. than where he was. 
because he was always sort of a, a mid card and maybe even, you know, maybe even more an upper prelim or lower mid card type yeah. guy. Maybe it would have enabled him to get a slight bump in places like mid south, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And yeah, I know Keith uh, has been making the rounds uh, talking about Lanny. Uh, of course, not only Lanny, but we also lost Jay Briscoe. Uh, recently I yep. worked, uh, I worked on shows with the, where the Briscoes were there, uh, but they weren't working. They, uh, they worked for Jimmy Kettner out of Delaware and Jim would always show up to Blaine DeSantis's Pennsylvania championship wrestling shows that I worked for. Uh, he would bring the Briscoes with them. Uh, one time I was supposed to manage the Haas brothers, uh, Russ and Charlie on a, sh- on a fair show for Blaine DeSantis. The Haas brothers actually were stuck in traffic getting to the show. So the Briscoes who had, who were there just to hang out ended up working instead. Oh, wow. Um, and here's the, the best part during the match, the Haas brothers actually showed up and <laughs> the promoter literally sent them to the ring without letting any of us know. Oh, wow. They literally, by, after the match, they didn't show up till after the match had started. So the promoter just said, um, either in your street clothes or do whatever you need to do, but just hit the ring and uh, just beat up baby faces. Wow. And and me and the Briscoes and our opponents had no idea this was coming. So we see two big guys, you know, running through the crowd, getting into the ring. We're like, uh oh, it's it's you know, the Briscoes are ready to you know fight. And then we realize it was Russ and Charlie, and uh, we all joined together and beat up the baby faces. Oh, that's hilarious! Wow. Yeah, that's fun times. Um, yeah, Jay, you know, Jay and Mark. Obviously, people harp on uh, the things that you know. One thing that was said many years ago that, by all accounts, he yep. uh, learned from. You know, his mistakes and learn from talking to people uh, that what he said was wrong and what he believed was wrong and and truly is believed to have changed uh, his beliefs for the better after that. You know, I I, I understand holding people accountable for the things they say and do, but we also need to be holding people accountable for learning from their mistakes and, and, you know, accepting that. Exactly. They were wrong and, uh, you know, not repeating it. And that seems to be the case here. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that serious note, we're going to go to, uh, my, this month I learned, which was, uh, about one of the more comedic gimmicks in wrestling back in the day. You know, people always say, oh, you know, I'm sick of people like Orange Cassidy. They never would have done that back in the day. Of course they would have. There were mummies. We talked about Benny Ramirez earlier. You had mummies, you had all sorts of crazy characters, but I never knew until recently that there was a female wrestler billed as the Martianette. The Interplanetary Champion. <laughs> now, she only worked on a handful of outlaw shows in Florida and Georgia. Um, I Speaking with Chris Knights about these shows, because he was actually the one. He sent me uh, just a clip of, of a show from Georgia, uh, because he wasn't sure if it was a Georgia show or a Florida show or an outlaw show. But uh, I went around looking for other shows from that same town, and I found one billing the Interplanetary Champion, The Martianette. But we believe these shows were run by Beverly Shade and her husband. Um, also appearing on them, as far as names that people would recognize, was Rock Riddle and Charlie Cook. Um, but there's an article promoting one of her upcoming matches, um, which is just absolutely incredible. It says... Um, the night the astronauts of Apollo 11 returned to Earth, there appeared in the Joyland Arena of St. Petersburg, Florida, what appeared, to all outward appearances, to be a human shape 
clad from head to foot in sparkling gold. Wrestling fans did not know the sex of the figure, but it was suspected to be female. She would not let anyone touch her, not even the referee. After much arm-waving, the match got underway. With dizzying speed, the golden creature defeated her opponent so savagely and utterly that her only purpose seemed to destroy and kill. (coughs) At the end of the match, the ring ropes were torn down and the figure ran from the arena and disappeared, never returning to collect wages earned or to ever be seen by anyone since. Wow. So the local promoter here in Brunswick, Georgia, apparently spent a couple of years investigate hiring investigators searching for this golden girl one investigator has traced her and found that she is actually from outer space and is known as the martianette well <laughs> ladies and gentlemen the martianette has returned and the local promoter mr leverick has promised to have her wrestle here in brunswick tonight at the national guard armory The audience is warned to keep away from the ring as one cannot be sure what the Martianette will do at any time. Wow. There will be police protection. (laughs) That's uh, a lot of hype for uh, an outlaw show. But, you know, again, it's just proof that uh, there was always silly gimmicks in professional wrestling and uh, it's really getting your your drawers in in a dither over you know <laughs> some of the things going on in wrestling today it's all been done before believe me uh and you can learn about what's been done before and what's been done in the past on our website chartingtheterritories.com we put up these a year in the life documents one every month for a different territory and you can also download the entire document uh via payhip.com where you can download for free or name your own price you can go to www.payhip.com slash charting the territories and if you want to learn more about Leroy and McGurk's territory in the early 1970s you can order my book the charting the territories presents the 1971 to 1973 Leroy and McGurk Oklahoma Louisiana Wrestling Almanac available on Amazon and also at chartingtheterritories.com. You can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. Or if you're ever in the Atlanta area and you see a bumper sticker, I have to order it from you. I haven't ordered it yet, John, but uh, I will be ordering a bumper sticker from you. If you see a car driving around Atlanta with a bumper sticker talking about uh, honk all you want, I'm busy watching uh, Gordon Soley calling the championship wrestling from Florida match in 1982. That is probably my car because John, you have just recently, uh, gone into the bumper sticker business. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I had way too much coffee, uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was reading about some guy who did a, a sticker, you know, the, the keep honking. I'm listening to Alice Coltrane's 1971 transcendent free jazz album, whatever, whatever. I was like, I want to do a wrestling one of these. So I was like, I, boom, I just ordered a, hundred of those stickers. Um, and you don't have to order one out. I, 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 yours is, uh, in the mail. Oh, uh, should, you should, you should be, should be getting it soon. If not, Excellent. If it's not, if it's not down there. So don't order one. All right. But oh, everyone else order one. You everyone can, else order one. If you go to, uh, uh, find me on Twitter at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. I post about it almost every day and order a sticker. It's $5. Yeah. Stick it on your bucks. car, yeah. stick it on your fish tank, stick it on your, Stick it uh, where the sun don't shine for all we care. Stick it wherever you like. <laughs> yeah. Within within that's that's legal. Well, anywhere that's legal, you're yep. allowed to stick it. Yep. 
So good to know. So yeah, we are covering a different territory every month. In January, we covered Leroy McGurk's territory. This month, we covered Stampede. Next month, we are going to a place near and dear to both Ray Charles and Charlie Daniels. Ooh. Hopefully, you figured this one out. It shouldn't be too difficult. And of course, for the first three months of 2023, the Charting the Territories podcast will be released on the third Thursday of the month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. This is Al Getz. Thank you for listening. We hope you uh, enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. John, thanks for joining me, and we will uh, we will talk again next month. See you next month.